0: Last week, these numbers came out. An
1: alarming and historic setback for America's young students.
0: They revealed the impact COVID's had on kids in school.
1: Across the country, test scores dropped and significantly during the pandemic.
0: The math results were especially alarming. Only 26
1: percent of eighth graders were proficient or above in math. The drop in reading just wiped out three decades of academic gains. The education secretary- There's a term
0: educators use for what's happened here, learning loss. Jack Schneider, who studies education at the University of Massachusetts, he hates this phrase.
1: I think that it's a really misleading term. I think that when people hear that, the first thing that they are going to think is that knowledge got knocked out of kids' heads. Right, that individual students have ended up knowing less and being able to do less than they were able to do prior to the pandemic, and that, that just isn't the case.
0: Well, I think a lot of us understand that knowledge has not been suctioned out of our kids' brains, I do think the way we talk about these scores has an air of panic. Even the Associated Press can be a little breathless about it. In a recent article, they put it like this, and I'm quoting here. There are fears for the futures of students who don't catch up. They run the risk of never learning to read. They might never master simple algebra. The pandemic decline in college attendance could continue to accelerate, crippling the US economy. The reason why that paragraph stood out to me is that in one graph, you go from students might not catch up to they might never learn to read to Lack of college attendance might cripple the whole economy. And so it's like just this catastrophizing <laughs> that I feel like when you read these articles, it just gets sprinkled in as fact.
1: Anytime that we don't come in first, anytime the scores don't improve, it reinforces this national narrative that somehow our schools are in precipitous decline. And I think one of the things that it reflects is just how much weight we put on our schools in this country. right? Just how much we ask them to do that they're not actually built to do.
0: But it's hard to look at results like those in this national report card and not think the country's in a bad spot. After all, only a quarter of eighth graders were proficient in math. And I think a lot of parents, and I am one, a result like this activates this fear that essentially the pandemic made our kids stupid. (laughs) Do you think that's useful, that fear, in any way?
1: No, I don't, actually. Uh, I think that fear... Is something that motivates a behavior that is often oriented around uh, individuals and the folks who we can impact immediately right so it causes us to to hunker down and think immediately about our own kids and those of us who have the resources to ensure that our own kids are fine will ultimately get our own kids where they need to be and all that will do is exacerbate disparities that we already see, right, that existed well before the pandemic.
0: So you're saying the pandemic did not make my kids stupid?
1: (laughs) Well, I've never met your child. I can say that, you know, I live across the street from my daughter's school, which is our local public school, and it hasn't made any of those kids stupider.
0: Today on the show, looking at these disappointing test scores Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This
1: is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: Let's start off by just talking about the basics of the national report card. This is a test that measures reading and math scores all around the country, So this year, what did it show? Just give me the basic details here.
1: The basic details are that scores were down uh, in reading and math in general across most states. And, you know, this is expected. Right, We just came through a pandemic when students were massively disrupted. Most of them were online at some point. Even those who weren't online experience tremendous disruptions, both in school and outside of school. And so we see declines to levels from, you know, roughly 10, 15 years ago. And I would say that actually um, is more encouraging than discouraging. Hold it, why? Well, (laughs) you know, if you believe that knowledge has been knocked out of students' heads, which is not the case, right? Um, these are not uh, losses in what an individual knows, right? These are declines in what we would have predicted students to score uh, had they continued growing at you know, predicted rates as measured by standardized tests.
0: Uh, so it's not actual loss. It's loss in potential or where we thought things would land.
1: Right. So it's not as if you're giving the exact same test to the exact same student, right? You've given it a new test for a new grade level to that same student, and that student scored a little bit lower than students a couple years earlier in that grade level had scored.
0: But I want to push back on this just a little bit, because when I look at the results they do seem upsetting. Like 26% of eighth graders were proficient in math. That seems very low.
1: It is low, right? It's something we should all be concerned about. I just think it's important that we not be surprised that the pandemic has had an impact here, right? So the narrative could be, our young people are not where we want them to be, let's continue to figure out how we can make smarter investments in public education and continue to build capacity so that we get them there. Um, that, that could be the narrative now, right? It's just that it's a lot easier to tell a different story now that scores are down to say, well, really the sky is falling at this point. Hmm. And I think that that's not the case because, again, these declines are totally predictable. There is nothing surprising about these declines, given what young people have gone through and given the way that school was completely disrupted by a -a once-in-a-century global health crisis.
0: One thing I noticed buried in this report is this finding that kids who performed well on these tests were much more likely to have had access to, say, a computer or a tablet or to a quiet place to work. It seems like such an important detail to pay attention to. Like if you pay attention to education, you know that tests are often measuring wealth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that just seems like it rang a bell for me where I was like, oh, well, of course those people would be doing better. Like they have everything they needed to get through a pandemic like this.
1: That's a really good point. And I think that it helps illustrate something that is often misunderstood about underperformance uh, as it's often framed or you know the, the achievement gap as it's often discussed. Um, these are generally speaking not indicators that we have some schools that are doing just fine and some schools that are doing okay and some schools that are absolutely failures. Um, this is instead indicative of the fact that we have a lot of inequality in this country and that a lot of young people come to school with tremendous tailwinds behind them right they are most likely going to succeed right these are kids like my daughter who have every advantage who have all kinds of supports and as you were just talking about right during the pandemic she had her own device she had high speed internet she had one parent at home with her all the time because my wife and i were able to adjust our schedules at the same time kids who have tremendous headwinds uh, and those headwinds are, you know, things like poverty, right, and, and everything that it means for a young person. Um, it can often mean not seeing yourself anywhere in the curriculum, right, um, not seeing any teachers who look like you. And it should then be no surprise to us that because some kids have these tailwinds, some kids have these headwinds, and because our schools are still pretty segregated in this country, that some schools on average, because they're serving either more privileged kids or kids who have been marginalized in this country, that they have higher or lower average test scores.
0: One thing I want to point out before we get too deep into it is that you do run something called the Beyond Test Scores Project. So I don't get the sense that you are a fan of tests. <laughs> so when we're talking about this national report card, why should I trust your gut?
1: Ah, on it? <laughs> well, it's not my gut, right? It's... It's... Uh, Research and experience. Um, It's conversations with other experts. But I'll tell you, I'm not opposed to tests and the appropriate use of tests. Um, Tests are a useful instrument if they are responsibly deployed. So let me give you an example, right? Uh, If you're working with a student who has a disability and you want to figure out What that student is able to do currently and where that student needs to grow, right? Where the limitations currently are, you can administer an assessment. That's hugely important, right? You can then use that information to develop an IEP for that student, right? So, this is an individualized plan that directly addresses. Uh, what that student is already able to do, and that responds to what that student needs educationally speaking. That's that's a really appropriate use of that test. Similarly, if we think about NAEP, right? This
0: is the national report card.
1: Exactly, right? The nation's report card, and an appropriate use of NAEP is monitoring. It's tracking how. The public schools are doing on average but the most common use of tests in this country is to hold schools accountable and given the fact that test scores reflect out of school factors more than they do in school factors right they're more likely to reflect things like um, poverty concentrated disadvantage uh, or the opposite than they are anything about what's happening in that particular school
0: One thing that stood out to me in these numbers from this week that sort of gets to are we thinking about the tests and what they're showing in the right way? Is the fact that I think a lot of coverage of this nation's report card has jumped from test scores went down during the pandemic to, well, we should have gotten kids back in the classroom sooner. The latest national report card shows math scores taking the biggest drop ever and reading scores following to their lowest level in decades. Parents, as you can
1: imagine, are not happy.
0: What did we think was going to happen when we put children behind a computer screen and um, put them behind masks where they couldn't see their uh, teachers speaking to them? Especially
1: Well, first of all, I think it's really easy with the benefit of hindsight to Make claims like that, right? It's really easy to look at the statistics on, you know, incidences of COVID among uh, school age young people and say, well, you know, look, they would have been generally safe in schools. They would have done a lot better, educationally speaking. It's easy to sit here now and say that. It's also easy for those of us who don't have long COVID, uh, who who are still around, right? Because we didn't die as a result of COVID. Um, and it's particularly easy for those of us who didn't lose loved ones to, to make these kinds of claims. And the other thing that I would add to that is that NAEP, right, the nation's report card, was not designed in a way that would allow us to identify particular kinds of approaches.
0: What Jack means here is that people often look to this national report card to puzzle out what's working in the classroom. And then they end up drawing contradictory conclusions. So at the same time, some have used these new NAEP scores to blame learning loss on school closures. Others have pointed out that states where kids had access to in-person school did not necessarily do better than everyone else. Jack says NAEP's data, it's just not built to answer the question many parents are asking about how shutting down schools impacted kids.
1: Something that people always want to do with NAEP is look at um, well, where did did particular states or you know sometimes uh, we get reports out on individual districts, where did states or districts do better than expected or worse than expected, and what can we learn from that? And so researchers will, will often joke about so-called misnapery right? So people using using NAEP in inappropriate ways. And this is one of them, right? To try to work backwards and say, well, let's figure out the secret sauce that led to, you know, whatever state performing in whatever way. And we just cannot get sufficient information from NAEP. We just see the outcomes. They could be the result of, you know, something that was happening outside of school.
0: After the break, cutting through the political spin about these new numbers. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast
1: queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at progressive.com to try the name your price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Last year in your
0: podcast, you had this really interesting episode where you addressed the way kids were learning during the pandemic. And you featured an eighth grade teacher in Boston who was asking students how they felt about learning loss. And I found it really interesting to listen back to it in this moment where we're looking at these test scores. Because the teacher was basically making the point that emotional needs were so much more salient to her kids than the academic ones, and that we needed to refocus education in that way. Like her kids, when when she asked them what they lost, they were talking about losing family. They were talking about Losing the sense that people were there for them.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I co host a podcast with Jennifer Berkshire called Have You Heard, and some of our best episodes are with educators who are often reminding us um, that the sort of high minded rhetoric about public education is often divorced from the actual needs of students, the actual experiences of students. Uh, so, you know, if we think about what young people show up to school for the answer is so much bigger than you know the taught curriculum and particularly the taught curriculum as it can be measured by a standardized test right that that school when it succeeds for young people is a place where they begin to identify their talents and their interests where you know the world suddenly becomes a bigger place for them and that's the part that is hardest for me when I hear the discussion about learning loss, because what it wants to do is narrow the mission of school to this really sort of torturously small vision of instructing young people in two subject areas. And of course, we want to do that. Of course, that matters. But, you know, the most privileged of us would never accept a vision of education that just did that for their own kids.
0: Yeah, this teacher. She had this interesting way of talking about testing and its usefulness or lack of usefulness right now. She basically said the pandemic was like throwing kids in a frozen ocean. Like It was shocking. It was life-threatening. And testing kids when they got out of the water was like sticking a thermometer in their mouth when what they needed was a warm blanket. I just thought it was so wise. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I guess my question on the other end of it was, do we have a metric that's actually trying to capture where kids are at emotionally right now and layer that onto the school's conversation?
1: First, I just want to name that teacher uh, who you're referring to. That's Nima Avashia, who um, is no longer in the classroom. But in in terms of uh, this question, so, you know, I co-founded a consortium of districts, uh, the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment, and the entire purpose of this approach is to try to assess student learning and school quality in a way that is valid, democratic, and equitable.
0: So, what do you find about the pandemic? Like, how would your data layer next to the nation's report card?
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of it would also be not surprising, right? That that. Young people felt less safe. Uh, They felt less engaged, uh, you know, particularly when they were on Zoom. Um, And that, you know, all of the things that we also try to collect data on, like how much access are you getting to art instruction or music instruction? We saw declines there as well. And so I think we really need to be paying attention to that stuff. And we also need to be paying attention to bright spots where we see, wow, in many cases, kids are really bouncing back, and so the best efforts that are unfolding right now to address what young people have lost are addressing not just the academic piece, but you know what researchers would often refer to as the whole child, right? So, like in Boston, for instance, um, there are uh, social workers now. Who are working for the district, who are trying to support young people. I talked to the superintendent of the Baltimore schools who said, you know, yes, we are doing, you know, intensive tutoring, but we're also doing things like increasing our arts offerings.
0: But what's interesting about hearing what you're describing here is that the very supports that you're talking about is so crucial are the things that if I listen to say Governor Ron DeSantis. They're the things that are under attack.
1: Yeah, uh, we are living through a really troubled time right now, uh, and that has poured over into our schools. So the culture war has come for public education in a way that it never really has before. Uh, We have absolutely seen attacks on schools in the past. We have seen attacks on educators Most often, those have been a means to a broader political end. So, you know, go back to the Cold War, for instance, right? The kind of witch hunts that happened that ruined particular teachers' careers and, in some cases, lives were really in service of um, just broader political mobilization, right? They weren't part of a direct attack on public education. And all the way through, you know, about uh, the beginning of Betsy DeVos's tenure as Secretary of Education.
0: This is Trump's Secretary of Education.
1: Right, yep. There was pretty broad bipartisan agreement that public education was a good thing.
0: The thing is, now there's much less agreement that public education is a good thing. Conservative activists are pushing for more charter schools, even vouchers that would let parents use taxpayer money to fund private education.
1: Ms. DeVos, it's always great to have you on the program. Let's take a look at uh, where test know. scores are. the national. And when
0: these new test scores got released, they became more evidence that public school just wasn't up to snuff. Uh, this was not a surprise that the drop was going to be significant. Uh, what is a surprise is that uh, we continue to f- force fit everybody into the same system that has proven itself decisively to not do the job for too many kids. and uh, Do you worry about this national report card being weaponized by political actors who have an agenda that is not pro-public school? And I guess, how are you seeing that already?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. Um, this is absolutely going to be used by opponents of public education as a tool to try to pry people's loyalties away from public education, to try to divide them from their actual experiences, which have been mostly positive. We see through polling that most people feel that their own children are getting a good education in the nation's public schools. Um, to, To engage in what I think is a really cynical policy effort to undermine people's confidence in the schools and to propose something that I think most of them actually know right most advocates of vouchers actually know in their hearts is not going to better serve young people but it is going to be cheaper it is going to adhere to free market ideology it is going to allow for public dollars to flow to religious schools so it's going to accomplish a lot that they want to accomplish but the rhetoric that they're using is that you know, it's going to empower families. It's going to allow them to have more options. It's going to lead to better outcomes. We have a lot of research. It does not lead to better outcomes. Now, you know, narrowly measured by standardized tests, sure, Um, but still some very disturbing outcomes uh, from larger scale voucher studies.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me because with these test scores, I've seen quotes from people deeply involved with education saying things like, We now need a Marshall Plan for education. And I'm not sure that that's wrong, that we need a a renewed interest in education or renewed investment in education. But I think what isn't being discussed as much is what that plan would look like. Because I feel like there's a very clearly articulated plan on the right, which is privatization and charters. But we're not really talking about what it would look like to invest in more public education. And when we do, we're talking about all the problems with public education.
1: (laughs) Right. The left tends to make the case for public education or for investments in public education by decrying everything that is wrong, right? Uh, So saying, you know, hey, our schools are segregated. Our schools are underfunded. We have this tremendous achievement gap, Let's do something about it. Let's invest in public education. And then you have folks on the right saying all sorts of uh, critical things, often not grounded in truth or reality about public education. And so, you know, both sides are essentially saying negative things about the schools. And then I think the other important thing to note here is that there has not been a real vision for what public education can do and should do for young people beyond just saying well, it should be focused on college and career readiness. I would love to see a broader, bolder, more ambitious vision of public education that strives to accomplish all the things that schools can actually do, rather than the things that schools can only do a little bit or can't do at all, right? So schools aren't going to solve poverty. Schools aren't going to, you know, work magic for the economy. But they can prepare young people for not just careers, but also their entire lives. We ought to be building out a vision of what does that curriculum look like such that young people come out not just ready for college or career, but also ready to be democratically engaged citizens. I get that what I'm proposing is unlikely to happen, um, but it doesn't mean that it's not important or essential.
0: Jack Schneider, I'm really grateful for your time and for your research. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Jack Schneider is an associate professor of education at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. He also co-hosts the podcast, Have You Heard? Quick note to my kids here, obviously mom does not think the pandemic made anyone stupider. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next?, The best way to support our work is to go over and join Slate Plus. Super easy to do. Just click on slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. Tell them Mary sent you. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Tori Dominguez, and Colton Salas. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. I'll catch you then.